invite you to open with me again to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter uh, 4. Revelation chapter 4, we're going to actually consider uh, Revelation chapter 4 in its entirety. I did tell you when we were in uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we would uh, end up uh, going a little quicker through uh, some of the other chapters of the book, and indeed that's what we're going to do today, spend uh, just one sermon on the whole of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter uh, 4. Let's uh, consider now verses 1 through 11. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peal of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This ends this reading in uh, God's uh, holy word. Let's now look again to the Lord and seek his help in prayer. Lord, our God in heaven, what a marvelous chapter of scripture this is that we have just read oh lord you have given us a glimpse into heaven into the throne room of in which you from which you rule and reign and dwell and and uh and have dominion over all things we pray oh lord our god for the help of your spirit even as uh the seven spirits are sent from your throne, the Holy Spirit and all of his activity and power sent from your throne. Lord, we pray 
that that spirit, Lord, would come and dwell in our hearts and grant to us understanding of your word and responsive hearts, Lord. It would be a tragedy, O living God, if we walked in here today absolutely unchanged from having met with you, the living God. Lord, meet with us, change us, glorify yourself, for we pray these things in Jesus' name, Uh, amen. Well, I think that um, most of us uh, like to look inside other people's homes. Um, And I think we're especially curious about the lavish homes of the wealthy. Uh, And so, if you're anything like me, you've been several times in your life on tours, tours of giant mansions that were built by extraordinarily uh, wealthy uh, people, and they've uh, left those homes now uh, to the public that they can go and see. Or perhaps you're interested in the uh, lavish homes of a celebrity, and you find online certain pictures that are uh, given of, of their homes, and you click through those things, looking at one room after another, and you're kind of gawking at the, the place where they live. I think uh, many of us have an interest that's heightened even further if you could uh, walk through a king or a queen's palace. Wouldn't that be a tremendous opportunity if you were invited for a tour, say, of Buckingham Palace? You know, I think even uh, of the popularity of certain uh, shows, like The Crown, for instance, on Netflix. And uh, people, I think, are partially interested in that because they, they wonder, what would it be like to be the, the queen? What would it be like to live in this place? It must be absolutely extraordinary. Well, in the chapter that we're given today, John receives a vision. He, again, is in the spirit, okay? And he uh, receives another vision. And this vision, in this vision, he looks and behold, he says in verse 1, a door standing open. But it's not just a door that is standing open to Buckingham Palace or any other mansion that you might go and tour, but it's rather a door standing open in heaven. And John receives an invitation to enter. And it's an invitation from none other than the one who is king of that palace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like a trumpet, he says to him, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And indeed, in the remainder here of chapter 4, and as we move next week, Lord willing, into chapter 5, we're going to see a vision of heavenly worship. You and I, by the Spirit, get a glimpse into this palace that is greater than any other. Uh, The throne room of all throne rooms. The place where the King of the universe dwells. It is heaven itself. The word throne is mentioned 38 times in the book of Revelation. 17 of those times come in chapters 4 and 5 of this book. The Old Testament tabernacle and then the temple in many ways were representations of God's throne here on earth. You'll remember that the They had those outer courts and then that inner court, the holy place, where there was the showbread and the lampstands and the altar of incense. And then through the veil was the holy of holies, the place that represented the dwelling of God, the Ark of the Covenant place there where God himself dwelt between uh, the cherubim. Well, that earthly tabernacle and temple was 
uh, really a copy of the true dwelling place of God, which is in heaven itself. This is where God truly dwells. And this is where we have a glimpse of this morning what goes on in this dwelling place of God in the throne room of heaven. I want us to consider our passage today really under three different headings. First of all, we're going to look at who sits on the throne. Uh, Secondly, who surrounds the throne. And then thirdly, we're going to see what those who surround the throne do. So who sits on the throne, who surrounds the throne, and then lastly, what those who surround the throne do. Well, first of all, we're going to see who it is that sits on this throne. And we find this in verses 3, and then again in verse 5 and 6. And as we are taken into this uh, palace of heaven, uh, we are led straightway to the throne itself. This stands at the very center. Uh, This is the most important thing about heaven. It is that heaven is the place where God himself dwells, ruling in power and in might. And in the description of this throne uh, that follows, it's important that you realize that it's a symbolic description that we're given. Uh, This is not a literal, physical description of what heaven uh, looks like, or certainly what God looks like. Rather, John has had a vision, and in this vision, he is given symbols, symbols which represent certain truths. It represents reality, but he speaks through these symbols because the reality is far more than you or I could possibly comprehend. Uh, There is no description that could possibly be given which we in our earthly condition could fully wrap our minds around. Our God in heaven is glorious beyond description. But these symbols uh, that are given in this chapter and really throughout the book of Revelation uh, teach us truths about our our God. Well, we begin with uh, John uh, (coughs) uh, conveying to us, again, symbolically, some of the sounds and lights and colors that radiate from the enthroned Lord. Uh, Verse 3 tells us that he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Jasper uh, most likely is not like modern jasper, which is a more dull, opaque stone, but rather it probably refers to a diamond. Uh, And that's the indication we're given actually in Revelation 21 in verse 11 where there the new Jerusalem is described as having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper that is clear as crystal. And So here is a rare jewel, clear as crystal, brilliant and radiant in its appearance. That's the description here. And then carnelian, or sardius, is that which is blood red. Again, another precious stone. But then we're told uh, after that, that around the throne then was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The rainbow, of course, uh, was uh, the covenant sign which was given to the people after uh, the flood. Uh, The rainbow is that which shows God's faithfulness and his mercy to his 
uh, creation, his sustaining of his creation while he works out his saving purposes in it. And here, surrounding this throne is a full bow, a rainbow that shines with the appearance of another precious stone, an, an emerald. And so basically, here in verse 3, we are given a brief description of God's appearance that far surpasses uh, the splendor of any earthly king's court. Uh, the idea here is that God is the one who has all wealth, all beauty, all glory. He is magnificent. Spli- uh, he is full of splendor, full of glory beyond anything which you and I could possibly imagine or describe. But then it goes on. Uh, verse 5 uh, describes then uh, some of the things which come from this throne. Verse 5 says, From the throne then comes flashings of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Uh, these are sounds which represent the majesty and the holiness of uh, God. Uh, these uh, should be familiar uh, a phenomena. If you remember, this was how the Lord himself came uh, and gave the law at Mount Sinai when he appeared uh, to Moses. Giving the law, he appeared in his majesty and holiness with these same kind of phenomena. And it reminds us again of the, of the greatness of this God. But then it says as well that before the throne, verse 5, were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Uh, These seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God, uh, likely refer to the Holy Spirit. We saw the same expression back in chapter 1 in verse 4. There we were told, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And we said uh, that spirit there refers to the Holy Spirit. And the number seven, which represents a fullness or completeness, refers to the spirit in the fullness or completeness of all of his sovereign activity and power. That is, the God who rules on the throne has sent forth his spirit to do all of his holy will. And so the Spirit is at work in this world doing things which you and I can't do. It is the Spirit who is converting hearts. It is the Spirit who is conforming us unto the image of Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who is staying the hand of Christ's adversaries. All of the sovereign will of God is being performed through the activity of the Holy Spirit in this world. So this God's will is always accomplished through his sovereign activity in the world. But then the sea of glass that is like crystal, to what does that refer? Now there are various interpretations of this. I think it's difficult to say with certainty what this refers to. But it is true that in the scriptures and certainly later in Revelation, the sea is that which represents chaos and evil. Uh, The sea uh, was a dangerous place in the ancient world. It continues to be uh, even today. But here, the sea, which often represents chaos and evil, is presented as being a sea of glass, calm and bright like crystal. 
And it's a reminder that even the, of the, that the evil and the chaos of this world is subdued by the power of God. That even the wicked actions of wicked people are under the Lord's sovereign control. The sea is as still as glass before this God. Dear friends, this is the picture of the one who reigns and rules on this throne that we are given. And this isn't simply the one who will reign and rule at some future time in some future kingdom, but rather this is the picture of the one whose dominion is even now. What a glorious thing this is, just to make application of it. Dear friends, we must remember, always remember, that our infinitely majestic, sovereign God is on His throne. Day by day, moment by moment, He is on His throne. When the world seems out of control, when there's a pandemic that is raging, when there is war in the Ukraine, when there is increased global unrest and tension, when there is the rise of militant Islam, when there is a nuclear North Korea, when there is increased inflation and financial volatility, when there is a secular society that calls evil good and good evil and seems to be degenerating with every passing year. Dear friends, in the midst of such things, God is on His throne. When your personal life is struggling, when you are going through various trials, facing financial uncertainty, decreasing work, a paycheck that you're not sure is going to come in, when you experience sadness over the sickness and death of a loved one, when you experience the pain of infertility, or disappointment at how your life has played out, things have not gone according to your expectations, dear brother or sister, remember that the Lord God, our infinitely majestic and sovereign God, is still on His throne. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this is telling us something that is real and true? The universe in which we live isn't a geocentric universe. It's not, the earth is not at the center as the ancients perhaps believed. But you know, it's not really a heliocentric universe either. The sun is not at its center. Ultimately, it is a theocentric universe. At the very center of all that exists is the living God who made it all and who continues to rule and reign over all of it. And John here has, as it were, through this vision, led us straight into the middle of this universe. And what is it that we see on it? We see a sovereign, majestic God who rules and reigns in glory, who is working all of His purposes out in this world. And the question again is, do you believe that to be true? Uh, the story is told, I think I've told this before maybe, of Martin Luther, the great reformer Martin Luther, uh, at one point in his life, uh, things were going badly, uh, and he was moping around his house, uh, uh, depressed. Uh, and his wife, Katie, I love most stories that have to do with Katie Luther, uh, 
she uh, one day uh, comes out dressed in all black, the clothes of mourning. And her husband looks at her and says, why are you wearing these things? Has, has somebody died that I'm, that I'm not aware of? Has, has somebody passed? And Katie says, well, the way that you're acting, I thought God died. It was, a, it was a helpful rebuke to Martin. Okay? And I think it can be for you and me, too. Sometimes do we act as if God has died. That he's not on the, un- that he's not on the throne of this universe. That he's not living in majestic splendor and glory. Does our right life reflect that glorious reality that whatever evil and trials you endure, that our God is still on his throne? That is, that's the one who sits on the throne. Secondly, though, I want us to consider the one who surrounds, those who surround the throne. Those who surround the throne. We find this in verse 4, and then in verses 6 through 8. And here we're told uh, in this chapter of two different beings, kinds of beings that are listed. The first of those is found in verse 4. We read that around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, who is this speaking about? That would be the question. Who are these uh, elders? And I think we have... Uh, Some clues, some clues that were certainly given in chapters 2 and 3, those letters to the seven churches. You remember uh, several times uh, it spoke there of white clothing that those who endured would wear. That refers to Christ's righteousness and even uh, the inwrought holiness in their lives, this idea of being clothed in white garments. Uh, and also the idea of a crown that we read here in verse 4. The crown was mentioned several times in chapters 2 and 3 as a reward for those who, again, remained faithful to the Lord, to those who persevered. So it seems that what is being spoken of here, oh, and then also it spoke also of a kind of joint rule that they were given, a kind of a dominion. And here it speaks of these 24 thrones that are around the throne in heaven. And so, I think that these 24 elders that are listed here uh, uh, refer uh, to either, as some commentators think, uh, to uh, uh, certain um, heavenly beings who represent the church, or simply, as others think, and, I, this, is, and this is what I would think as well, that these 24 elders, as it were, Uh, is simply a symbolic way of speaking about the entire glorified church itself. I think that's what's going on here, is that here are Christians. These are those who have, as it were, waged the warfare, who are now in heaven, have received these white garments, have received the crown in heaven, have been restored, as it were, to their rightful rule with Jesus Christ over this present creation under the the ultimate dominion of God. And why are there 24 of them? Well, there, I think the answer is rather simple. This is, uh, there were 12 tribes in Old Testament Israel. There were 12 apostles in the New Testament uh, church. 
Uh, and so this number 24 is simply a symbolic way of speaking of the church of Jesus Christ unified the church of both the Old and New Covenants. And we find similar kinds of language, more explicit actually, in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, where there in describing the New Jerusalem, it speaks of the walls of that Jerusalem with 12 gates, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Those are the 12 tribes of the Old Testament. And then it speaks of the wall of the city having 12 foundations, and on those 12 foundations were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So even there, we have, as it were, the 12 tribes of the Old Covenant, the 12 apostles of Christ, brought together as a way of symbolically representing the church as a whole. So I think that that's a similar thing that is going on here that here it's describing Christians. Christians who, by God's grace, kept the faith, who ran the race to the end, who endured the fight, and have now entered their heavenly reward. Here is the whole church united, both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints together. One people of God. Here they are, surrounding the throne of the God whom they worship and they adore. So that's the 24 elders sitting on these 24 thrones. But then there's a second kind of being that uh, is described, and this one is in uh, the second half of verse 6, down through the first half of verse 8. There it says that, uh, that around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and uh, within. Now this is actually language that is just um, dripping, as it were, with Old Testament references. Primarily, and we're not going to turn there, but primarily Ezekiel chapter 1 Ezekiel chapter 10, and then also Isaiah chapter 6. And what we have seems to be a combination of these various Old Testament visions. And if we put those things with those Old Testament references to it, it becomes quite obvious that these living beings are some kind of angelic beings that are around the throne. Well, what about these faces that are like a lion, ox, eagle, and man? Well, these are simply uh, uh, speaking of uh, some of the greatest of the created beings. A lion is the greatest and fiercest of the wild animals. An ox, the strongest of the domesticated animals. An eagle, the most majestic of birds. And man is the one who is ruler over all these animals. And so I think it, it is saying here that these angels are those who reflect a kind of dignity or strength or honor. Uh, some commentators say that they, as it were, represent the rest, of, the rest of creation, not just the redeemed saints, but the rest of creation. I'm not sure. I, I think it's, it's fair to say that they are simply angelic beings who have strength, dignity, and honor. And these are those who are before the throne, just like... Uh, the Lord dwelt between the cherubim 
on top of on the mercy seat in the ark of the covenant here the lord dwells surrounded by uh, his angels who are ready to do his will here it describes them as having six wings isaiah 6 tells us that it is with two wings that they cover their face and with two their feet and with two they fly uh, the idea is, again, that they, as we're going to see in a moment, they're expressing humility before the Lord, but also a readiness, a willingness to obey Him. And they have eyes, it says, eyes that are all around and within. Now, I think this refers to a kind of uh, a knowledge that they're given, especially as they fulfill the divine will, the God who sees all things. Uh, these angels are ever ready uh, to do His will wherever He would call them. They're God's agents uh, set forth to do the will of their uh, Master. What a vision this is. The throne surrounded by the 24 elders representing the glorified church and these four living beings, uh, angelic messengers surrounding uh, this throne. What a glorious picture this is. Again, let me just make some application of this. By the application, simply to say this, oh, what a privileged place here is given to the glorified people of God. What a privileged place is given to the glorified people of God. Think about it. Here are the redeemed sons and daughters of Adam. Sinners by nature and by choice who have now been cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and not only are we forgiven of our sins and restored to fellowship with God, but God says, it is my delight, it is my joy to bring you into the closest fellowship with Myself. Come, surround My throne. Be near to Me. What a wonderful thought this, what a wonderful thought this, uh, this is. You know, sometimes you go to a sporting event and maybe you get the... the you know, the nosebleeds, you're way up at the very top. And, and you go and you think, it's been kind of fun to be here, but I probably would have seen things a lot better at home. Just watch it on the TV screen. Well, in heaven, dear friends, we're going to not be in the nosebleeds. We're not going to be so distant that we can't see what's going on and have no idea of the presence of God. Dear friends, we're going to be in the midst of it all. We're going to be there, participating in the worship of this glorious uh, God, what a, what a privilege is ours, dear friends. Can't you see it? You know, I think as Christians, sometimes in this life, we are tempted at times by the thought, you know, it would be easier if I weren't a Christian at all. Sometimes you're tempted and you, and you think, I'd have so much more time on my hands. You know, all the time that you invest in the life of the church, being here Sunday after Sunday, worshiping, serving some of you as elders or deacons or Sunday school teachers or in a variety of capacities, trying to form relationships within the body of Christ. You'd have so much time if you weren't a Christian. You'd have so much more money, too. I just heard somebody say that. And that was the other thing. You'd have so much more money if you weren't a Christian. You could do so many other things with that money. Okay? So many, so many things. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, You'd, you'd perhaps even sometimes, maybe you think in this way, you'd feel a little bit more freedom if I wasn't a Christian. I could do what I want. I wouldn't have this sense of guilt that plagues me if I, if I do certain things. Just pursue my own dreams in my own way. Go where I want. Perhaps you fantasize in that way sometimes what it would be like to be a Christian. Well, 
dear friends. If that ever appears sweet in any way, it's a devil's lie. To be a Christian is the most gloriously privileged position on earth. It is in this life to know the living God and to have a family with whom you are going to dwell forever and ever. Friends, it is going to be to be brought near to that throne of God in heaven for life eternal. What a privileged place is ours. Don't ever look with jealousy at the non-Christian world. It's they who should be looking at jealousy with us. So much jealousy that they would bow the knee to King Jesus. We are in the highest, highest privilege. And whatever things the Lord asks us to give, what a privilege it is to serve the one who is the King of Kings. Lord, this money, it's yours anyway. You gave it to me. Oh, that I could use it for eternal purposes. Praise, Lord, the time that you've given me, it's yours anyway. Oh, that I get the privilege of investing some of my time for the glorious King of Kings. What a, what a privilege it is to serve this Lord. Do you see, can you catch a vision even here from Revelation 4? The glorious position that is ours, the privileged position that is ours as Christians. So that's who it is that surrounds the throne. Now, third and finally, I want us to consider uh, what it is that those who surround the throne do. What it is that those who surround the throne do. And to put it simply, what they do is they worship. They worship. Both the 24 elders, the glorified church, and the living creatures, these angels, worship God. Friends, that is the primary occupation of heaven. And and I want to say to you that it is only when you and I are utterly captivated by this vision of heavenly worship that we will come to prize and value earthly worship as we ought. And the reason is this, it is that our worship here is a foretaste of what we are going to be doing for all eternity. I actually can even put it stronger than that. Our worship here is actually a participation in the worship that is now going on in heaven and that we will engage in eternally. And doesn't that change our perspective entirely on what we do when we meet here? These aren't just a few people going through this weekly ritual that we happen to do. But rather, these are the people of God gathered in this corner of His earth, coming together in the presence of Almighty God to mingle our voices with those of angels and archangels and the saints who have gone before and Christians who are scattered in a variety of different meeting places across this earth. And here we come to gather with them in the worshiping assembly and to give all glory, honor, and praise to the one to whom it is due. That's what we're doing when we come together. That's the the privilege that you have to participate in. What can we learn about our worship from this passage? Just briefly three things I want to say. Three, Three things that we can learn about our worship from this worship that goes on in heaven. And the first is this, that it is... Uh, um, continual worship. It is continual worship. Did you notice that in verse 8? These four living creatures, each with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and 
day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They, they don't tire of singing the praises of Almighty God. They continue in it all of the time. And friends, this ought to be instructive for our lives as well. It does mean that in our lives while on earth that we ought to be seeking moment by moment to make all of our moments and all of our days moments of worship. That as we go about our daily activities, we're giving thanks and praise to God. We're uttering prayers along uh, the way. We're cognizant of His blessings. We're meditating on His promises. Lord, make all of my moments moments of worship to You. But especially, we can say, Lord, help me to be continual in those times of corporate worship with your people. The Lord has given us a Sabbath day, one in seven, that He has set aside and He has said, this is a day for my church to gather and to participate in this heavenly worship. Here is the day that is a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath of heaven. Friends, if the angels and the saints in heaven are ceaseless in their worship, should we not as well be continual in our pattern in keeping those times which God has given us to worship Him? If worship is the chief occupation of heaven, it needs to be my chief occupation on earth. And that means if the Lord has called me to gather with His people to worship, I dare not miss it for any reason. Lest I physically, unless I just absolutely physically cannot presently cannot make it to that location. Okay, that that as it were, all other obligations scatter in light of this great obligation to worship the Lord. It takes priority over everything else. And sometimes that's costly in a world that ignores the worship of God. They're glad to schedule other things on Sunday. They don't have any taste for what we do. But as Christians, we say, no, I have one great duty above all else. And that is to join with those who are in heaven to worship my God. And so I'm going to do it. So our worship ought to be continual worship. Secondly, our worship should be humble worship. Humble worship. Do you see that in verse 10? It says there that upon hearing the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the Lord, then the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns now before the throne as they give glory to God. They, as it were, are glad to take the lowest place. They, they fall down in worship. Even the crowns which they are be, have been given, they lay them at the feet of, of their king. This reminds us, dear friends, that worship is not chiefly about us. Worship is not chiefly for you. It's not chiefly for you to be uplifted or to be encouraged. It's not for you to receive a little jolt in your day. Now, one of the byproducts of worshiping God is often that we are encouraged in the faith as we look to Him. But if you're in worship, first of all, to say, what can I get out of it? you're starting at entirely the wrong end. You come to worship to bow down before the living God and to say, you are everything and I am nothing. I'm a sinner saved only by your grace. Oh, Lord, that you would be exalted in my presence. Is that your hard attitude when you come to worship? It's not, it's not these people better do something for me 
or this God ought to do something for me. We don't hold it. No, dear friends, it is to come as our duty and as our joyful duty before Him and to bow down in His presence and to say, Lord, I give You glory and praise. It's humble worship always. Humble worship. But then lastly and finally, it's God-centered worship. It's God-centered worship. Did you notice the theme of their songs? It's all about God. The living creatures cry out, verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Do you hear that song of worship? They're exalting the Lord's holiness with that threefold proclamation of holy. They're exalting His power. He's the Lord God Almighty. They're exalting His eternity. He was the one who was and is and is uh, to come. And then when the... uh, when the elders fall down before the throne and cast their crowns down, what do they say? They say, Worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. By your will they existed and were created. You see, they are praising and glorifying God. Worship, dear friends, is a transitive verb. And what I mean by that is that it is a verb that has an object. You don't just worship. You always worship something or someone. And the Christian always worships the triune God. He is the object of all of our praise and adoration. It begins with Him. It is centered upon Him. It is to make much of Him. It needs to be God-centered worship. Uh, The theologian David Wells, who used to teach at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, wrote a book uh, that was helpful. And he says, at one point he commented in our evangelical world on the seeming weightlessness of God in the world in which we live. He says this. He says that in our world, God has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. And that's... That's the world in which we live. People are living lives that are centered on themselves. Getting by in the world, making good grades, getting the best job, trying to find some happiness for themselves in the world. If God is brought in, at times it is in an instrumental way to try to use God to serve some ends for themselves. Lord, you make me healthy. Lord, you make me successful. Lord, you help me. You see, the Christian is just the opposite. We... We, dear friends, we are to have God at the center of our vision. We bow down to Him and we give Him praise and glory for who He is, for what He has done. And in doing that, like I said earlier, we will find joy and satisfaction and delight. But it's as we worship Him and Him alone. Well, what a glorious vision this has been of the throne room of Almighty God. This is better than any house tour you could have gone on. This is the palace of the King of Kings who rules this universe. Might the Lord help us to worship and glorify Him and to give Him the glory that is His due. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank You for this glimpse that You have given us into Your throne room. We thank You, O Lord, that You are on Your throne even now. That we, as your blood-bought children, have been brought in by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. 
indeed, Lord, we praise you that you have called us to be worshipers. Oh, Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you that you have included us among those who give all glory, honor, and praise to your name. Oh, Lord, bless us, we pray, as we come to the table, and we pray this in Jesus' name.